Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Chitheads podcast. Today, we have another special episode that is actually a combination of two interviews that I did several weeks ago now um, for a Facebook Live event that we threw to celebrate the launch of our journal, Tarka. Of course, our journal, Tarka, has been around, but we recently launched it as a print offering, uh, and our first issue was. Uh, issue number one, of course, on Bhakti. So today's episode is two different interviews, one with Mary Riley Nichols, who you will all be familiar with as a previous guest on the Chitheads podcast, as well as a member of our faculty at Embodied Philosophy. And the other interview is with Kavita Chanayan, who you'll also be familiar with as a previous guest on the Chitheads podcast, as well as a faculty member as well of our yoga philosophy program. Kavita is actually beginning a course called Deity, The Path to Liberation, which starts actually on April 16th, which is just a couple of days away on Thursday. So if you're listening to this just as it airs, it's not too late to sign up for that uh, course. If you'd like to register, just head to embodiedphilosophy.org forward slash deity dash course. That's embodiedphilosophy.org forward slash deity dash course. If you want to get your hands on a copy of the Tarka Journal, just head to embodiedphilosophy.com forward slash Tarka. That's embodiedphilosophy.com forward slash Tarka. So please enjoy this episode with Mary and Kavita. Hello, everyone, and welcome to day three of this celebratory event. Um, We are celebrating the launch of our new print journal, Tarka. Uh, The Tarka journal has been around for a while. Some of you probably already realize that um, as an online offering. Um, But over the last several months, we've been working really hard to create um, what has turned out to be, I'd like to say, uh, a very beautiful offering. Um, And so I'm here with one of the contributors and friend and faculty member of Embodied Philosophy, Mary Riley Nichols. Hello, Mary. Hi. Thank you so much for joining me. So glad. Um, so I invited Mary to to speak as a part of this uh, Facebook Live event because Mary, she contributed an article. I'm going to read a little bit um, from that article in a moment. Um, but Mary also has a, an approach to bhakti, which really kind of highlights the the quality of bhakti that transcends any particular tradition or. Uh, you know, a particular lineage stream or religion. And, and, and that really is the, the spirit of, of bhakti. And we can find bhakti then, you know, instantiated in a variety of ways in different cultures, in different contexts, in different traditions. And that's really the kind of, um, one of the beautiful aspects of bhakti that, that Mary brings forth in her, in her article, which is really more of a kind of poetic, almost a sutra-like, um, uh, contribution, and I'm going to read a few of them. It's very beautiful. Um, we decided because it was so beautiful, because it was so heart infused and and um, nectarian, oh <laughs> that we put it at the end because it's sort of like you know, save the best for last, as it were. Um, <laughs> so I wanted to read a few of the um, the sutras, and it's the the title of of Mary's piece is 13 Brief Notes on Bhakti Yoga. And so I'm going to read um, a few of these, and uh, um, she includes in uh, these passages, um, uh, in these kind of sutra-like uh, passages, uh, various quotes, but I'm going to leave those quotes out and, and give you something to look forward to. So I'm just going to read the bits that Mary wrote herself. 
Number two is um, titled, Love is the Vehicle that Unites the Individual with God. Love is not different from knowledge. It is a different form of knowledge. Love is a kind of knowledge that is more subtle than thought. Trying to think our way into the unitive state, no matter how intelligent we are, is like trying to split the atom with a hammer. Number five, the heart is a doorway to the infinite. Right in the center of the chest, you are possessed of a handy threshold to the infinite. Breathing love into the heart opens the door. Your awareness easily travels outside with the breath to explore the shape-shifting world, then returns within to probe infinite inner space. The inhalation and exhalation are your spiritual footsteps. Every breath walks you back and forth across the threshold of the heart. You are always holding hands with the eternal. That's so beautiful. That's so incredibly beautiful. I'm going to actually have you read the last two, but I just realized, why, why am I not having the author <laughs> read her own work? Um, but I'll read one more, and then I'll have Mary read the last two. Nine, bhakti is recognition of the love that permeates reality. We define it so narrowly, narrowly and then ask, where is the love? Love doesn't have to appear before us on the scale of a Wagnerian opera. Bhakti yoga is noticing the love emergent through the smallest and simplest everyday scenes. You look up and appreciate the beauty of autumn colors in the trees. A man plays catch in the park with his son. A groundskeeper works with pride at his landscaping. Two lovers stroll eating ice cream. Runners rhythmically glide by interspersed with cyclists. Pigeons are pecking the ground in front of a lady throwing them morsels. You stop at a cafe and smile with the, the stressed-out barista, wishing her a great day. A bhakta actively recognizes the eternal hide-and-seek of love. Okay, I'm going to take my note out here, and then I'm going to hand this over to Mary. Mary, will you read us um, 10, 12, and 13, um, the bits that you wrote? Okay, thank you. 10. Bhakti is returning the favor. Universe endows us with reality in every cell of our being, clothes us in consciousness and makes us real, asking nothing in return. This gift of being is unconditional. Since it gives us the honor of being a person, when we choose to personify the unknown, we are at last simply returning the favor. The formless waits to be recognized, seen, known, and born into the world. And then 12, yeah, 12. Okay. Bhakti, <laughs> <clears throat> okay. that's a good one. Bhakti yeah. con connects us with the eternal eros. Mystics teach the way of union through the natural intensity of romantic love. Love your chosen one as a lover. Aligning love with breath awareness quickly becomes an ecstatic practice. If you love your breath, you fall in love with your life. Whisper sweet nothings, the divine names, to the prana. With breath as vector, love plunges ambrosial arrows through the heart center. Being thus interpenetrated by consciousness with every inhalation and exhalation, one participates in the lovemaking between the finite and the infinite. 
the personal and the impersonal. This love scintillates in the smallest microcosm and explodes at the level of the macrocosm. And then the last one. And then the last is God is love. Love is the form of the formless, the feeling of the infinite. When you love God, you are loving life. You are loving love itself. And love becomes unboundedly exponential. You will be in ecstasy. Hmm. Yeah. Very. <clears throat> so beautiful. Thank you. Thank you. It really is um, just such an incredible uh, article. And it's one of many, as you know. So um, the, the link is on the bottom of this. Uh, screen if you want to get a copy that's available in digital and print digital if you want to save some trees and uh, print if you like to hold things in your hands and are obsessed with books like uh, me so like myself yeah um, so Mary you know as I was saying um, you know one of the beautiful things about I think the way you express bhakti is this kind of way that it it transcends tradition in a certain kind of way mm -hmm. so can you talk a little bit about that you know non sectarian aspect of bhakti? Yeah, I guess so. Um, well, I, I think that, you know, I first started um, getting into a love relationship with the universe as a child, um, you know, just as a, a way of escaping my childhood a little bit, and also because I had been um, raised Catholic early on. So there was that kind of orientation toward the form and toward of toward love and and um, and um, seeking uh, and and longing, yeah. sort of like pouring all my longing into this this abstract form, which is God. And later on, I began to use just loving the breath as a way to adore the universe and adore the absolute. Since there's many texts later on, I found that you know say that the breath is the absolute. Prana is is the supreme principle. Yeah. You know, a good kind of supreme principle that we can get a hold of. Yeah. And um, so for me, obviously, there. once I start to um, get into this method of relationship with the divine, then I find that I can read Sufism or uh, mystical Judaism or uh, shamanism and or many different kinds of uh, cultural ways that this has been going on you can see it in many different cultures but once you get you get the knack of the love mm. then you get to um uh taste the different flavors and nectars from the different traditions that's been my yeah that's experience. so that's interesting so it's almost like you have to be captured by the the quality of bhakti in order to see bhakti in these different yeah. expressions yeah. and i feel that way i think that's been true of my own experience of where um I feel like as I, bhakti has been something that's cultivated sort of externally to the representations of it that we find in different traditions, but having been moved in a certain kind of way, then you're able to sort of extract that yeah. nectar from the expressions, whether it's in a text yes. or, in a, you know, a treatise or a, or a teaching. Um, and I want to go back to what you said about prana, because I actually... I love the way, and this you were actually the first person I think I ever met who taught, who sort of spoke about this as, as really falling in love with your own breath and with the prana, um, because like you were saying, it is so, it's something that you can really grasp onto. It's somatic, yeah. right? So it is embodied in that way. And, and it's a, and it's almost, and, and then also it, 
it invites you to cultivate a relationship with something that otherwise might be so unconscious. Yeah. Because most people are just completely, they're not paying attention to their breath. Yeah. And, and their breath is obviously so reflective of a, their state of mind and what's going on. Yeah. Um, so can you talk about what kind of changes um, in the experience, in experience of life or experience of spiritual practice, when the breath becomes a friend in that way or the breath becomes a lover? Yeah. Well, so, I mean, for one thing, I love what you said about how we don't pay attention to it. It's the fundamental foundation of everything, and so we sort of ignore it, you know? Yeah. And uh, But once we recognize it, you're, it's the most simple, basic thing, and, and it, is, it also is, uh, in the form of prana, it pervades the whole universe, including the animate and the inanimate. Yeah. So you're getting in touch with some underlying uh, unity, um, medium. And um, I think of the breath, when I first started, I, it's like a delivery system for love, okay? So if I love my prana, okay, then I'm, uh, the and I breathe deeply, I'm bringing deep love into myself, and it's also getting into my cells as neurochemistry. But then what happens too is that your relationship with the divine if you call it that, is um, very intimate. What could be more intimate than the breath, which actually enters into the very cells and makes them work? And so it's this deep intimacy that I love. And as we go into the tantric stuff um, that uh, Jacob teaches, we, we also start to follow the breath to its source, uh, both at the end of the inhalation and the exhalation. So now you're getting to really touch the supreme principle through the breath. It delivers you to the supreme principle really easily. That's the great thing. What You know, all of this with the bhakti and the breathing is basically I am a lazy person and I want to look for something that really, yes, I am. I, you know, it's a paradox, but I'm, you know, I don't want to do any work. But it's not that hard. I mean, you're breathing anyway, you know, so you link to the breath, this, this, uh, the emotion of love. And it's uh, when you do that, and then you want to whisper sweet nothings to the prana, so you give it the, you call it by its name. And then you could get, if you don't mind, very sexy with it. You know? <laughs> we don't mind, Mary. <laughs> because, you know, it's interpenetrating, right? Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, it's, um, it's the kind of lover that never leaves you, right? Your, your breath. And uh, if you do personify it, um, it it uh, really takes on a personality I've found, mm -hmm. and um, sort of a deep, um, attentive lover, yeah. if I may say. And so you know, just do it, and um, don't be afraid. Because and I was one of the uh, things in that article um, is from the Bhagavad Gita, where Krishna says to Arjuna. You know, offer me a leaf, some water in your hand, a flower, I'll accept it. Meaning, look, God or the divine, the universe doesn't need anything, but for a relationship, offer something. Mm -hmm. And then at the one of those chapters, he says, some offer their exhalation into the inhalation and their inhalation into the exhalation. Mm -hmm. So you can make your breath an offer, okay? How do you make your inhalation an offer? Offer to receive it. Because when you take in... <laughs> the divine, you know, I mean, <laughs> so the, the being receptive, you know, and maybe the, the universe wants to go deep. Can you take it in, you know, 
And so being receptive is an offering. And then you, you give back. And it becomes this beautiful way to meditate that, that includes um, eros and, mm. uh, and uh, of course, makes you um, feel connected. Wow. That, I love that, that being receptive is an offering. That's yeah. really beautiful. By the way, I should also mention that, you know, shameless plug here, but Mary's teaching, of course, <laughs> called The Art of Breathing that begins in the beginning of April. And you can tell how, how much, you know, experiential knowledge uh, she has about this particular um, uh, subject. So, you know, check that out. It'll be, it'll be coming up. So, Mary, um, you know, you're talking all about this breath, and I just feel call, you're sort of calling us to do a little bit of breath practice. Yes. Would you lead us through a short breath practice? Sure. Okay. Okay. So one thing I like to do when I do spend a moment, you know, in my, uh, you know, boudoir with my divine lover, I'm going to just go there. Okay. <laughs> go, go I there. just do it, you know. So, but you want to have um, a posture, which is an attitude, but again, gently bring your shoulder blades back and down and together and bring your ears back over your shoulders. And what I'm going to ask you to do is reach with the top of the back of your head up. So we're lengthening our brain stem, so to speak. And um, you know, this part of the brain is responsible for breath uh, automatically, unless we do uh, conscious breathing, right? So we're going to lengthen that part of our brain, which is the, the in our neck. And we'll, let's start with, uh, you may know that I really like this kind of breathing, which is the cooling breath. And what we're going to do is purse our lips and breathe in through pursed lips. And we're going to be as wine tasters. And when you taste wine, you run the wine over your tongue with oxygen to get the nuance of it. Maybe prana, maybe breath has a flavor that we've been not paying attention to because it's been there all along. So let's exhale, purse the lips, and inhale across the tongue, breathing. You'll feel the coolness like this. Now hold it in, and then release it. Beautiful. Very nice. Just experience the change in consciousness that happened just from that. And one of the things we do, especially when uh, Jacob teaches us more about Tantra, is the relishing and the appreciation of our states. So we're going to do that again and to purse the lips to relish the prana. This gives honor to the prana, recognition to its flavor. I want you to taste it, okay? You're going to feel it. You're going to hear it. Let's do breathe in. How refreshing. Hold it in. And exhaling. Beautiful. relishing that <clears throat> I'm going to do one more and on our exhale we're going to notice if it feels like the exhalation is ascending okay because love and this time when we when we relish the the flavor and the feel of the breath that's a form of love okay we're expanding our notion of love we're not putting it in a little box love is so many things so many kinds of appreciation and when we exhale, we're going to notice if we feel a sense of ascent, because love is also a vehicle of ascent. It goes up. It is positivity. Okay? So let's give it a shot. We're going to get our head back. When you bring your head back, 
imagine that you're uh, making a crown of your head parallel with the sky, okay? And now purse your lips and uh, just taste the deliciousness of the prana. And we can hold it. We breathe out. We're going to see if it's an elevator. Exhale. Any way you like. Very nice. And we can just gently open our eyes and get back to uh, just being that we're, mm. I think, permeated a little bit by yeah. simple bliss. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Thank you, Mary. Okay. That's beautiful. Thank you. thank you. I don't feel ready to talk yet okay. after that. I, <laughs> I feel a little stoned on my breath. <laughs> That's what I like. Uh, <laughs> So, um, Mary, uh, uh, this has been fabulous. And um, so before we close, is there anything, um, other kind of key aspects of, of bhakti or, you know, or the associated topics of kind of love and devotion that maybe you mentioned in the article or, or things that, you, that just come up for you as important to reflect on as we explore this, you know, topic of bhakti? Yeah. Well, I think that um, one of the main uh, tools, if we will, for this to have these this experience, and that can be with you all the time, is mantra or word or the name, mm -hmm. and learning to love the name. Okay, it's the, it's just a love object. I think that we create a form and we love it in order to develop and cultivate love. Mm -hmm. And and as I mentioned, love is an ascending vehicle, so it brings you to, you know, brings you home, really. So what you want to do is pick a name or a form, but it would be good to have a name because a name you can repeat to yourself as you walk around. Mm -hmm. So, you know, when you chant, you're going to come with a Rama and, and a Krishna and, and a Om Namah Shivaya and Hamsa, which gets even more subtle. And so whatever the name is, as you, as you integrate it with your breath you adore it okay mm -hmm. and um, then you're walking around with this love that you're not looking for it outside and I find that what then happens is that you know you people come to you and you're 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 you become a source right mm -hmm. you're not actually seeking for someone else uh, to love you and uh, but you still get love all the time mm -hmm. that's been my experience yeah yeah. So with regards to the name is, you know, the name that you would choose or that would choose you, it's something that expresses the divine or something expansive in some way, right? And so I wouldn't just be like, for example, the name of, you know, a wine bottle or something or a wine glass, or I'm yeah. just like, re you know, repeating the name of wine, wine, wine. <laughs> that ought to get you I've been wine. taking a break from wine, so that's why it's on my mind. <laughs> if you're in a restaurant, then wine will come. Right, wine. but like, but there's something about the the kind of name, right? <clears throat> Can you talk a little bit about that? Well, I, you know, um, we, I'm not a, the real expert on the um, power of the phonemes right. uh, that, that many of your Sanskrit teachers can talk about, and yeah. also the, those uh, scholars and practitioners that you have uh, in your cohort. But um, I think that, you know, because being uh, cat raised Catholic, there's a, a whole tradition of the name, the, G, the holy name. Right. And, you know, there, we even have in our, uh, our uh, 
commandments, do not take the name in vain. Mm. Um, and so that means there's something holy about it. And then we also have a prayer, which is our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. That, you know, we just say that to ourselves, but it has no meaning yeah. until we think about it. Or we it. interpret it as kind of, kind of a, a, a weird sort of... Punitive. Yeah, a weird yeah. level. Like, don't take the name of it. It's meant to be like, you know, a bent to castigate people who say, oh my God, or yes, something. Yes, yes. When really, that's very interesting. I've never thought about it that way. That's so interesting. I, I, I know. I, and I think, you know, with, when we do um, our breathing and then the oomph, course that we're going to talk about the power of words and how they kind of have they dissipate the power of words dissipates if we uh, don't have enough silence and we don't really yeah. drill down yeah. uh, so anyway the holy name there's something about god's name in all the different traditions so of course if a guru gives you um an, uh, a name to say which is an, a mantra that's uh, something to take to heart yeah. Um, but you're going to be attracted to, to certain, like Guru Om is one. But uh, I've been playing, I know I, I, I'm a flirt, but I've, I've gone to Aham Brahmasmi lately, which is I am Brahman. And Bra is the expansion, you know? So Brahman to me means the Big Bang. So when I say Aham Brahmasmi, I'm saying I'm the Big Bang, motherfucker. Right? <laughs> Sorry. So I'm just saying, when I walk around, aham brahmasmi, you know, I I feel good about that. Yeah, I like that. Yeah. That's great. <laughs> so I, just, I am the big bang. Yeah, that's right. What else could you be? What else could you Look be? at you, yeah. big bang. <laughs> <laughs> wow, that's beautiful. Yeah, so um, Mary, it's been a delight. I'm trying to keep these under 30 minutes. Yeah, I haven't been doing a very good job this whole week, but it's we're looking at, we're right close to the end. So I just want to... Um, thank Mary for joining me on on um, on day number three of our of our lovely Bhakti um, celebration of the journal Tarka. Again, this is um, the journal here, of course. Obviously, you've been seeing it the whole time. Um, but if you're interested in getting uh, a copy for yourself, um, you can go to embodiedphilosophy.com forward slash Tarka. Uh, there's print that's available that will be sent out, um, you know, to your dress. We can send internationally as well. Um, and then there's also, um, as soon as you get the print edition, you also automatically get the digital, autom you know, as soon as you order it. And you can also just order the digital uh, as well. You can, there's also subscriptions. And if you are associated with a bookstore or with a yoga studio and you'd like to carry the Tarka Journal, um, please reach out to us at hello at embodiedphilosophy.com and we'll be uh, sure to uh, help you out with that. So um, once again, thank you so much, Mary. It's been such a pleasure. Thank you. This episode of the Chitheads podcast is brought to you by the Embodied Philosophy Wisdom School. The Wisdom School has two levels, Seeker and Sage. The Seeker level gives you access to all of the past talks from our conferences, summits, panels, and seminars. That's over 200 hours of mini trainings, lectures, and workshops on contemplative studies, yoga philosophy, and mind-body therapy. You can start your free trial of the Seeker level by going to embodiedphilosophy.org forward slash Seeker. The Sage level of the Wisdom School gives you unlimited access to all of our past four, six, and eight module courses, 
as well as access to all of our future courses. We have 12 new courses launching in the Wisdom School over the next three months, April to June. And after that, we will be launching two new courses each month in the Wisdom School, one in yoga philosophy and one in mind-body therapy. And again, as a SAGE level member, you get access to all of these as well as the chance to vote on what courses will be released in the Wisdom School in the future. To learn more or to register as a SAGE-level member of the Wisdom School, just go to embodiedphilosophy.org forward slash SAGE. Hello, everyone. Um, my name is Jacob Kyle, and uh, I'm here with Dr. Kavita Chanayan. We're here today to celebrate. It's, this is a, a week of celebratory events. We're celebrating the launch of our new journal, Tarka. And, uh, and uh, throughout the week, I have been interviewing and chatting to a number of the contributors. Um, and today I'm joined by Dr. Kavita Chanayan, who's a friend and faculty member of Embodied Philosophy and um, someone who uh, uh, contributed two uh, pieces, one interview format and one article to this, uh, this issue of Tarka. And so we're going to talk a little bit about um, her contributions and the larger sort of um, spirit of bhakti today. So hello, Kavita. How are you? Hi, Jacob. It's so good to be here and with everybody. It's really um, nice to see you. And I'm glad we finally worked our technical kinks out. Uh, yeah. We've gone on YouTube instead of Facebook. So um, hopefully people can make it over to, to, to join in on the, on the conversation. Um, so Kavita, I wanted to explore just mentioning the two uh, articles. Well, one is an article and then one's an interview. And in the interview, um, uh, uh, we invited you to reflect on, on kind of what devotion means to you in the context of your own sadhana. And while, you know, the bhakti is often associated with the, the Vaishnava and Krishna bhakti tradition, um, I was particularly interested in, in featuring you in this issue because I know you have um, more of a Shaiva or Shakta perspective on, on devotion. So can you talk a little bit about um, what devotion means in the context of your own um, sadhana and then also maybe, you know, what bhakti more generally means, you know, outside of that Vaishnava context? Yeah, sure. Um, you know, this issue of... Um, Bhakti being a uh, specifically Vaishnava thing is something I hadn't even heard about, you know, growing up in India. And um, I don't know why um, they, the Vaishnavites uh, might have any, um, you know, claim over Bhakti because uh, Bhakti is the fuel of any sadhana. You know, and um, for me specifically, you know, I uh, am a um, I'm a huge Krishna bhakta. So for me, you know, I understand the the Vaishnava context as well. But um, and you know, what bhakti is for me is the fuel for practice. Mm -hmm. And if you don't love something, and I'm also a mother and a wife and, uh, and a doctor. And so anything that we do, you know, if we don't have love for it and devotion for it, um, you know, then it becomes 
uh, a task, a chore. And uh, for, for anything in life to be successful, right? You, you've heard of this, you need to have both devotion and dedication. Devotion comes from the heart and dedication comes from the mind and the brain and you need both. And um, so if you don't love the, you know, in the beginning, the idea of, um, of God, then in any form, then what would make you want to pursue that? You, you know, even to have curiosity, you have to have some, you know, you might begin with curiosity and then you kind of, it's when you actually fall in love with God that um, the path actually becomes more real and there is suddenly an accelerated progress. And, um, you know, I have a very long uh, history in Advaita Vedanta and studied it for several years. And, and Shankara says, you know, in, in the Viveka Churamani that um, bhakti is love for, I'm paraphrasing, but bhakti is this devotion to awareness, you know, to this higher self and um, to what we might say in the Shaiva tradition to Shiva, the ground of being. And um, because if you don't love that, then you can't, you know, move your attention from everything else to that. Because it's only when you fall in love with awareness or Shiva or Shakti or Krishna, whatever we want to call that, that is when you are motivated to what it do whatever it takes, you know, whether it's waking up in the morning to meditate or to do various practices or to even fall deeply into this idea of surrender and, um, and to give in. So uh, does that answer your question? Oh yeah, absolutely. And I wanna go back to something that sort of stood out for me, which I, I loved you mentioning that you're a Krishna Bhakta as well. And and so I wanted to talk to you a little bit about how, you know, especially, and I also appreciate you pointing out that this is perhaps, uh, I don't know if it's just Western or specifically American, but perhaps it has something to do with the, the history of the ISKCON movement in the United States and its sort of, you know, emphasis on bhakti and so people associated with that. I'm not, I'm not really sure that's just my kind of guess. Um, but, you know, this idea that like, oh, if I'm a Krishna Bhakta, then that, you know, exempts the Shaiva Bhakti, you know, this I, this sort of sectarian idea that one should be one or the other. And you're obviously, you know, a, a perfect example of, of that not being true. So is this, you know, how does the, the, the qualities of Krishna kind of speak to you as a practitioner um, in contrast to the qualities of Shiva or the goddess, uh, for example, like how does that, how does that all reconcile with each other? You know, this idea of things reconciling is also very foreign to me. <laughs> <laughs> I don't need to reconcile anything. Yeah. Um, I can be absolutely madly in love with Krishna, which I am, and yet be a Shaiva, and yet be a Shakta, which I am. And, um, you know, it is, um, and, and if we want to look at qualities per se, right? Um, the perfect example of, um, of that would be the 11th chapter of the Bhagavad Gita where Krishna shows his Vishwarupa. Everything is in him, right? And then similarly, you go to the uh, Devi Mahatmyam and you have the similar thing of everything is in Devi. 
and you go to the Shiva Puranas and everything is in Shiva, right? So um, it's at any given point in time, it is um, what calls out to me. And, uh, and while we are here, let me also say that I am a huge uh, Hanuman Bhakta. So, um, and, and so it has never crossed my mind to, to reconcile anything, you know, and file away things neatly because um, such a thing doesn't exist. You know, yeah. my, my devotion is to divinity in whatever form. And um, many times it is myself, I'm devoted to myself, right? Because ultimately that is what we are talking about here. So- um, I really appreciate you saying that. I think that's such an important point. And I wonder if that also is partly, you know, I think, uh, would you say that perhaps that is kind of, you know, hin Hindus from India, they're not, they're not brought up with this idea that like, oh, one is this, one is that. And it's, it's sort of the kind of, the, the sort of Western academic desire to compartmentalize and understand these things in their own, you know, categories and strains and lineages that, that sort of encourages this idea that one must follow this path and be true to it as in this weird, like, you know, football team kind of way. <laughs> yeah, you know, to be fair, such things also exist in India. And, right. you know, there are the Shaivites and the Vaishnavites and in some communities, they don't even talk to each other. Oh. And, um, you know, that exists, but, but what happens, um, you know, in many, like in Sri Vidya, for instance, um, there are so many deities and, you know, there is, there's perfect um, acceptance and um, devotion to each deity um, without really thinking, well, you know, I should only be devoted to Lalita Mahatrikura Sundari because she's all encompassing and she is also Matangi. She is also Varahi. She is also Bala Tripura Sundari. So uh, she's also Shiva, you know? And so the perfect example of this is in the Lalita Sahasranama, right? In the thousand names of Devi includes everything, all the other deities as well. So, um, and you know, this, um, Idea of practice. Now, I just want to mention one thing. When it comes to practice, however, I do agree that it's really important to dig in one spot. Mm -hmm. You know, uh, because otherwise you're digging too many shallow, you know, holes and getting nowhere. So I think with respect to practice, I think it's really important to have one core practice and then all the other things that you do are really supportive of that. Uh, core practice, be it mantra or whatever it may be. Um, but devotion, on the other hand, you know, it, uh, bhakti, you can play with, you know, you can be, uh, the more bhakti you cultivate, in my personal experience, more you cultivate towards, you know, various deities, um, your heart opens in unfathomable ways. Hmm. Are there also I like what you were saying that it's sort of variable and does it vary sometimes depending on the type of situation that you're going through? Like, for example, you know, when you're going through hardship or sadness or heaviness of heart, is there a specific deity that tends to feel more comforting and it sort of becomes a better, I don't know, relationship to support you in that process? Or is, is that a way to think about the shifting, um, you know, bhakti representations or is it something else you know that's a good question and it really depends on who you ask you know because right. 
there are uh, practitioners and lineages which will say, okay, here, the remedy for this is this, and the remedy for this is this deity. And, um, and that's okay, that approach is okay. But um, see, I told you earlier, I'm a mother, right? And so if I'm looking at myself from the, from the standpoint of my children, right? It can't be that I'm only available to them for one thing, right? So I should be available for all of their needs at all times. And they, are, they can call upon me if they're scared or if they're happy or if they are stressed or whatever it may be, mm-hmm. right? They may call me by different names, mom, ma, this, ma, amma, whatever it may be, but I'm the same person. And so, you know, if we start to have these kinds of remedial kinds of relationships with deities, that becomes conditional. And here, what we are trying to do is, is break through that. Ultimately, I'm a non-dualist. <laughs> so my foundation is in non-dual shakta and shaiva tantra. And so that makes no sense to me. You know, it's uh, ultimately there is only one. And, and whatever we may call that, we should be able to call upon that at all times. And um, so I'm not such a huge fan of that approach, although I know that it exists and it's quite widespread. <laughs> I think if, you know, if I'm a lover of Lalita Devi, she's perfectly capable of taking care of me at, in, under all circumstances. Yeah, yeah, beautiful. <laughs> So is there a way of being a Bach, like I'm just imagining an example of, of someone who perhaps isn't quite comfortable in some way with a, with, um, with a relationship with a deity form and, 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 but they tend to feel that they have, you know, for example, something like what you're talking about for nature or, you know, some other expression. Does it necessarily, does bhakti, the definition of it necessarily require that one, that the, that the object of that devotion is, is divine or is it, can it be something more secular? Well, everything is divine. (laughs) (laughs) I agree (laughs) (laughs) so um, you know if you look at certain examples you know in in various bhakti traditions um, if you if you think about how you know God is approached right God is approached as uh, a spouse you know or a lover or as a child or as a parent or as nature or whatever, right? Um, so the the beauty of bhakti is that uh, the divine is available in infinite forms. So nature is is like perfect, and it, it doesn't have to be a deity. It doesn't have to have a form. And the reason that forms work is that most of us have, you know, we have. Um, what do you say? We have created God in the image of man. (laughs) So it's easier to think of God in our own image, right? Um, Rather than something that's formless and infinite and has no attributes. And, but that's where we get to anyway, 
through this path of bhakti, whether it's to a deity or to nature or to your own children or to your own life. Ultimately, mm. we, that is the, the goal, is to fall into that formless, all-encompassing one. Mm. Beautiful, beautifully said. Um, okay, Kavita, I want to talk about um, your article um, that you wrote, Bhakti in Tarka, um, which, of course, the title of the of the issue, uh, the title of the journal is Tarka, um, and so this is a great kind of way to ex uh, how you explore the relationship between bhakti and tarka in your article. Do you want to talk a little bit about that? Yeah, sure. Um, you know, we ordinarily think of, um, you know, tarka as this, um, you know, like a rigid, um, a left brain kind of an activity, right? Mm -hmm. When you say tarka, it, it, you know, to some of us, it seems like it is non-bhakti, you know, yeah. it is, Bhakti is very sweet and uh, more kind of soft, whereas Tarka is sharp and um, because it's discernment, right? Yeah. It's the foundation of, uh, or discernment is the foundation of Tarka, which is this perfected reasoning and logic. And we think of that as a left brain kind of activity. And um, again, you know, the example of this, I would go back to the Viveka Chudamani, which is by Shankaracharya, which is Viveka Chudamani means the crest jewel of wisdom. And so that whole text is about Tarka, actually, which is Viveka. A uh, little bit different, but, you know, you know, the uh, Viveka is discernment and Tarka is logic. And and of course, Abhinava Gupta places Tarka as the highest form of yoga. And, um, and so this, this um, in order to even understand what Tarka is, right, which is the ability to um, discern between finer and finer and finer points that are distinct. So in my uh, language, if anybody is listening who isn't, who can speak this language, you know, I'm a cardiac imager. So, um, you know, in cardiac imaging, you have to, the, the ability of a test to differentiate between two tiny structures is called resolution. You know, it's called resolution. So um, it's called spatial resolution or temporal resolution. And so, Discernment is like that. It is the ability to distinguish between increasingly subtle things, such as awareness and objects that rise in awareness. And this is something that we can't just uh, fall into. You know, this is a process of having worked through other grosser forms of discernment. Now, remember what I said earlier, which is you have to fall in love with awareness in order to be able to know the difference between awareness and everything else that isn't that. You know, in, in, in order to come to the understanding that um, there is one that is everything, we have to first come to the understanding that there is nothing. So that nothingness or the emptiness is what leads to everythingness and the wholeness. Mm. And to be able to differentiate that, right? It takes a very um, sharp kind of um, ability, you know, to be able to say, well, 
you know, this thought, this subtle emotion, this subtle vibration is an arising in awareness. And I am that awareness. And what is arising in me is not, you know, it is not awareness is the first conclusion we need to come to that it's an arising in awareness. And the eventually through continued self inquiry you come to this understanding that if it is arising in awareness, it can only be made up of awareness. So first you come to this thing that nothing exists other than awareness. And then you come to the understanding that all exists in awareness as awareness. But that process is known as tarka. You know, that process of discernment is known as tarka. Now, if you don't have love for awareness, you're going to be pulled into the drama of your mind, you know, into the drama of the arisings. This is called Maya, right? This is Maya because she is so strong. She pulls you into that, the, the arisings and everything that's going on within that and, and keep you from taking that step back. It's only when you fall in love that that process becomes natural, right? And it is through that heart opening of bhakti that we become aware of that awareness in the first place. Mm. You know? And to continue that process, because somebody told me recently when I was teaching a class, you know, awareness is boring. I'd rather be, <laughs> nothing's happening there, right? <laughs> Nothing's happening in awareness. It's I'd rather be in the drama of my mind because it's much more exciting. And so what I was, I was telling that person is, but once you fall in love with awareness, right? It's like being with your lover. And, and it's, that's a misnomer because there is no width. You are that, you are that subject. You are that awareness. And to come to that conclusion, it's like the, the feeling or the closest emotion that comes to that is love, mm. it's devotion, you know, to come to that uh, understanding and the realization that I am this, I am that. And um, so that without bhakti, you can't really make progress, you know, in Tarka. Yeah. Because that you're just, falling in love has to happen. Right. Otherwise, you'll just think it's boring and not worth it. Uh, so, or it becomes a chore, right? And, and the more you make this into a, a purely intellectual process, the more frustrated you're going to become because it isn't an intellectual process. Well, that's what I was going to ask next is that what I hear you saying is that this is something that's experiential. It's not merely cognitive in that sort of like intellectual um, discernment sort of way, the typical way we associate that term discernment. Um, so, you know, is is the falling in love something that happens organically and completely spontaneously? Or is it something that someone can work to cultivate so that they don't, you know, sit down and meditate and, and are totally bored in their meditation practice? Yeah, you know, it depends. And um, this is why, you know, the uh, whole, uh, you know, the whole issue of working with the deity is so effective. Um, because once you uh, cultivate a relationship with the deity, right, of whatever relationship, uh, you know, like I said, with Krishna, I, 
and Krishna is a perfect example of this, you know, of how, you know, if you read the Bhagavatam, of how different people had a relationship with him. You know, his, he was a child, you know, this baby um, that was, that's still worshipped as a baby. <laughs> and, and a lot of people are very much in love with that form of him. And then, of course, you know, when he grew up in Vrindavan, all the gopis were in love with him as this young, uh, attractive and um, charming, you know, um, adolescent. And then, you know, of course, then he leaves and goes and becomes a kingmaker. And that is a form that I am absolutely in love with, you know, this politician and the peacemaker and the kingmaker. And then, you know, there, there are stories of people who had a relationship with him as an enemy. You know, Shishupala is a perfect example of that. And they were in love with him as an enemy. Can you believe that? Look at the contradiction there. Um, and all they could think about was Krishna and how much they hated him. And so, but it was their constant remembrance that you know, even when, when they die, actually he kills um, Shishupala in, in, a, in a, a war, in a battle, and he is granted liberation because all his life, all he could think of was Krishna, even though he thought of him as an enemy. So whatever relationship with, we have with the deity, it is cultivating that love. It's like saying, you know, um, will, you know, if you if you choose to be in a long term relationship, how do you how do you cultivate that closeness and the intimacy and the uh, ongoing love with your partner, right? Isn't that a process? That's a process. It's not like we are given a manual along with that person and say here love him like this or love her like this, right? It doesn't happen like that. So. So too with the deity, you know, we have to cultivate a relationship and that, that constant giving and this constant, um, you know, intimacy with that just, you know, is one way of cultivating this uh, love where you are falling deeper and deeper and deeper in love with, the, with that. Beautiful. So you're talking so much about deity. So I feel like this, we might as well plug your upcoming course that yeah. is <laughs> happening in another month um, called Deity and Devotion. So right on the topic of what we're exploring. Um, do you want to talk? I know that you've recently, you know, you've decided to work with one deity. Do you want to tell those that are tuning in or that will listen to this later um, what they can expect from the course? Yeah. So this will be a four week course and, uh, and, over this time, we will actually only work with one deity, but in this way of cultivating a relationship in various stages and moving from the dualistic, you know, from the, from the very external dualistic, ritualistic kind of a relationship to the more subtle and the non-dual relationship of the deity, um, where you experience oneness with that DT. So that's what we're going to try to explore over the four weeks. Beautiful. Um, well, I look forward to it, certainly. And um, 
so I want to just mention again that the issue of Tarka that Kavita and I have been exploring um, is called On Bhakti, and it is available now at embodiedphilosophy.com forward slash Tarka. I'll let you take a look at the beautiful cover once again, the cover, of course, um, uh, designed or the whole issue designed by our, our wonderful uh, friend, um, Ryan Lemaire. And so you can get uh, a copy of that in either physical or digital form at embodiedphilosophy.com forward slash Tarka. You can also decide whether or not you want just this issue or you want to um, receive the other three issues uh, that will be happening this year. One is on um, ecology or divine ecology. One is on illusion. And another one is on uh, the topic of the scholar practitioner. So um, I hope you'll check that out if you're interested. So Kavita, as we close, is there any other kind of thoughts or reflections you'd like to leave our viewers or our listeners with, with regards to this you know, broad topic of bhakti? Yeah, um, I think, I think, I would really discourage people from thinking about bhakti in one particular way. Bhakti doesn't look any particular way. Bhakti is not about kirtan. It's not about bhajan. It's not about ecstasy and dancing and all of that. Sitting in meditation every morning is bhakti. Because if you didn't love it, you wouldn't be on some level. Um, listening to this, you know, even tuning into this is bhakti. Everything that you do for your sadhana, it comes from bhakti. You don't have to be doing kirtan. Trust me, you don't. Mm -hmm. That is not the only form of bhakti. That is only one. And by the way, I'm not into that either. So, uh, and I consider myself first and foremost a bhakta and, and, and then a uh, jnani. So um, it, bhakti comes in your form the way you are and the way you approach your practice, your sadhana, whatever it is that you're doing, it, that love and the attitude that you bring to it, that is your signature bhakti. So I don't know where this idea has come from. Again, a very Western thing that bhakti equals kirtan or the Vaishnava thing. It's not like that. <laughs> I mean, nothing wrong with kirtan, it's fun. No, but, but it doesn't have to be. Yeah, yeah. And I appreciate you pointing that out. Well, it's been great to chat with you, Kavita. And thank you so much for joining me, um, despite our, our technical challenges at the beginning. It's always a pleasure to see you. And um, do you want to share anything else with um, uh, the listeners about what's ahead for you? Yeah, absolutely. My new book is out on the Lalita Sahasranama. And it's available on Amazon. It's called Glorious Alchemy, Living the Lalita Sastranama. And I've explored bhakti there quite a bit because the entire tradition rests on bhakti. And um, I have a few um, courses coming up as well, including a one-year course on the Devi Mahatmyam that starts in the fall. So, Excellent. Yes. <laughs> Excellent. So, and uh, you can find that at, is it kavitamd.com? Yes. All right, so check that out. Check out her website if you're interested. Um, yes, your book is beautiful. And uh, uh, you can also see a little blurb from me in the on the fourth page. I'm very proud of it. Oh, yes, <laughs> yes. Thank you so much for that. <laughs> My first blurb. So uh, it was quite fun to do. Um, and I was uh, delighted to do it for such a beautiful, um, uh, such a beautiful offering that you had written. So thank you. 